Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. For this episode, Randy was not able to join us, but we have a special guest, which is Dr. Stephen Dempster. He has written a great commentary on the prophet Micah in the Two Horizons series with Erdman's publishers. I wanted to have him on to discuss Micah and just how to read it better. It'd be interesting for our hearers, I think, to know a little bit about um, how you were assigned the book of Micah to write a commentary on Micah, or would you say that it chose you? Yeah, I would say it chose me, and uh, I had been on a sabbatical, and uh, I was being considered to be a teacher at a particular place, and I was very interested because we became uh, very involved in the church uh, where we were in that location, but it didn't work out for various reasons. And I was very, very disappointed. Um, but uh, the Sunday school group in the church gave us uh, a text to actually exegete and uh, speak to uh, before we left. And they, uh, but they gave it. I guess the, the, the important point I realized as I worked through it, and Micah six eight uh, ends with, "What does the Lord God require of you? But to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly." with your God. It really dawned on me then that it was not where I lived, it was how I lived. And so I could I could seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God anywhere, not just in a particular location. And so uh, that was how God really spoke to me. And actually, uh, when I gave that message, they gave it to me, and God was actually speaking to me as I prepared it. I, I, uh, I was very slow. I learned that later on. Then when I went home, when, when we finally went home, there was actually uh, an email waiting for me from uh, the editor of the series, uh, Craig Bartholomew, inviting me to do a commentary for this series on the book of Micah. So I didn't really have any control, and I couldn't say no. Uh, a lot of my background was in Hebrew and uh, in Old Testament studies, and but also not just that in terms of the qualifications, but um, the Lord had actually orchestrated this that's the only way I can understand it and so I said I said yeah this chose me no I didn't chose it yeah and how long did it take you from from that initial invitation how long did it take you this whole process probably I'd say about uh, in terms of time I'd say about eight years uh, now I let me put it this way I didn't really um, I, I was doing research and reading on uh, reading the text. Uh, I was starting to think I've got to memorize the Hebrew as I would go through it, but I didn't do that. Um, but I'm familiar with so much of the book, and so I would I would read, and then I taught two courses on it uh, here at the university because I wanted to get to go deeper into it. Students and the students really helped me to rethink some of the ideas, particularly the structure of the book, and then. Um, and then I went to Cameroon in uh, 2013 for a, a six-month sabbatical, and I wrote, I had all a lot of the research done, so I then wrote a first draft of the book in Cameroon. And, and so I started that in August, early August, and ended in late December, the first draft. And then I came back and had, um, back to my teaching, and then I had another six-month sabbatical because I decided I would instead of taking a year sabbatical, I take two six-month sabbaticals. And so I had in the, in the fall, I basically finished it. 
in in the next six months sabbatical. So it was a long, long process. I learned a lot of things along the way, and uh, commentary writing is a lot harder than uh, than writing a book on a theme, for example, because you have to deal with everything. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So that so that I'd say about eight years. You mentioned that you wrote the first draft in Cameroon, and I remember in the preface to your commentary, you spoke about how being in that location was really uh, informed your writing of the commentary and, and the way that you understood Micah. Would you like to speak a little bit into that, how those two things related to each other? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was actually an amazing opportunity. Uh, two years before, my daughter, who works with Wycliffe Bible, Bible Translators, has been wanting me to, uh, she had worked, she's no longer working, but she wanted me to use uh, my gift of languages and in that in helping uh, translators in uh, other countries. And so she was working in Cameroon and she suggested I come over for just simply, I guess it would call it a vision trip. And so I went over there in uh, 2011 um, and worked with her and we were introduced to a group of people, um, and, and I'll never forget, uh, I mean, I'll never forget an opportunity I had in the little town of Womb in northwest Cameroon. Uh, Womb, not W-O-M-B, W-U-M. And, uh, and she, uh, there was a guy who was a pat local pastor, Ernst Nagua, of a, a church from a denomination. There was an ecumenical, uh, ecumenicism is very popular in Cameroon because uh, they don't see these denominational labors as uh, labels as important. It's it's what do you have Christ at the center? Anyway, he was he was a uh, a leader of a church uh, called the Deeper Life, which springs originally from Nigeria in this little town of Womb, and he was giving a Bible study to the translator translating team there. They were uh, they wanted to get this new uh, this this translation going. And it was the uh, and it had it had faltered. They had started, and, and it had faltered. And um, so they were re-kicking this translation uh, language in the local area. And so uh, what he said was uh, he he did a passage from I think it was Mark eight where remember Jesus heals someone but he has to touch him twice. And so yeah he mentioned the importance of sometimes we need to be touched twice. We need a second touch. And I and I really took that to heart. Here I was in Africa, and I was and I took that as sort of I needed this second touch from the Lord um, to uh, to help me look about opportunities that I had, which I could be using um, in other places. And so anyway, I I went back from Cameroon with that kind of experience in mind, and then um, the opportunity came with another sabbatical uh, to uh, to go. Um, and so to be a volunteer and a translation consultant with an organization called Cameroon Association of Bible Translators and Literacy. And uh, so it's an organization, an indigenous organization in Cameroon. Um, and I would work there with translators and help them as they would go and translate other languages. And I was working with two translators. One was... Um, um, uh, the uh, uh, his name was David Ngole, and he worked with Bakwiri, the Bakwiri Bible, uh, Bakwiri language, which is in a, a place near Boya, uh, in northwest Cameroon. And then I worked with another translator whose name was uh, 
um, Hervé Fatso, who worked with the Bakoko translation, which was in a place near Douala, the, the economic capital of, of, uh, of Cameroon, uh, in a little town called Adia. And I worked with them, and I, so I would give lectures on Bible translation to them, and then they, we would, uh, they'd give me feedback on some of their issues of their problems. And of course, I didn't know those languages, but I knew the original, which they were translating into. And so what we do is we would go, uh, when we went on field work, we'd go for a week to a particular place where the Bakoko translation was being done, and we'd be working through the Gospel of Luke. And so I would be listening to them, and they would back translate it into English. And then I'd tell them is if, uh, if I thought there was a problem with the Greek here or with that English translation. Uh, and so it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it was very, very hot, <laughs> let me put it that way. Um, but uh, I had a wonderful experience with the Cameroonian people um, and then just so open and hospitable and I enjoyed the church so much. But two things I saw that I thought really were resonated with me with the book of Micah was on the one hand, the incredible corruption it's, 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 it is on the index of one of the most corrupt countries in the world in terms of the politics, not in terms of the people. And so uh, what happened was, um, was there would be uh, a lot of oppression in terms of bribes and all these kinds of things that would happen. There's so much opulence among uh, sort of a, an upper class, and you get so much difference between that and the other classes of people. Um, there is a growing middle class, which is great, but you get this idea of corruption in the courts and, and in society very, very much. And so one of the things that Cameroon, um, this Bible translation is doing, is not only translating the Bible, but teaching people literacy so that they can actually read and write and so they can read things and they can become more aware and educated about issues and participate more responsibly in society and a lot of times they don't know what's going on because they can't read the signs or they can't read the literature and when someone comes uh, to go to buy a, a drug at the pharmacy uh, they can't read what the prices are so they're shafted you know by the person who's selling uh, so literacy is very very important in fact in one place that I went to in Cameroon and womb we, we had a sort of discussion about the importance of Bible translation and literacy. Someone asked the question, what does literacy mean to you? And one of the women who's learning the language to write and read um, says, enlightenment. One word, enlightenment. And I thought, wow, that was so, so true. So the Bible's being translated, but what is happening? They're teaching the people to read and to write as well in their own and it's kind of exciting to be a part of that. But the second thing I found in Cameroon that really needed addressing was um, the, the issue of the prosperity gospel. There is so much of, uh, I think it's probably been imported from the West, um, but, but there's so much of, uh, how would I put it, if you want to make a lot of money, found a church in Cameroon. Uh, there's so many of these places where the people exploit them. I was in a place one time staying in a little hotel um, and, and uh, I was waiting for my friend and so the clerk was uh, um, behind the, uh, the, the, the desk and she was watching this old TV and then I saw her put her hand on the TV and I said to myself, is there a problem with the connection or whatever? No, she says, it's the man of God. 
And so I have to be connected to this man of God to bless me. And it was it was this guy from uh, Nigeria. I forget his name. Uh, uh, T.B. Joshua or something. Uh, Synagogue Church of All Nations. And, and so she had to put her hand on this. Uh, this thing because he was speaking so she get get a blessing and then she showed me the a bottle of water the guy had sold her and it was a little canister not a little bottle about two inches by about one inch with a sprayer and it's a holy and it cost her forty dollars twenty thousand francs and she says i spray this upon people and uh and they get a blessing and i'm just saying to myself this guy is ripping her off unbelievable and I said, I, I said, you know, this is, well, this is horrific. And this is very, very common. This is very, very common. I mean, one of the pastors in Cameroon, in Yaoundé, the city, wanted to be the first in Cameroon to own his own helicopter. You know, that was the essence, being having made it, to own his own helicopter. Well, it's not, it's not, you know, I mean, where is he getting this idea? Well, these, these evangelists in the States, they have own jets, you know. Uh, so uh, those two things where you had this corruption of the prophecy, uh, spiritual leaders basically interested only in profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, not being a, a person that brings God's message. It's so easy to see how those things connect to the message of Micah, for sure. So uh, just turning to the to the book itself... Um, are you able to to briefly place Micah in its historical context? Where does he fit with the other uh, prophets and what's going on in Israel in its time? And then big picture message of Micah. What is he trying to communicate? Yeah, Micah is um, uh, positioned right at the in in some ways at the turn of the eighth and seventh century BC. So that would be roughly between seven thirty five and. 700 BC or 695 BC or so. Um, he's, he's roughly in that position towards the end of the 8th century BC. So his contemporary would be Isaiah. And uh, we know um, there's interesting material. Uh, he has very similar themes as Isaiah does. Uh, but Isaiah is from the city and uh, Mike is from the country. Um, but they really stress the importance of Zion, etc. So he would be after prophets uh, like Amos to the north and, um, and Hosea to the north. Um, and so he would be before prophets like uh, Jeremiah uh, 100 years later, Zephaniah um, and Habakkuk, etc. So he's right around the turn of the 8th century. So he's living in a critical time. The northern kingdom has just been destroyed in 722. So he prophesied before that, and he actually prophesied the destruction of Samaria. So he would have prophesied his first oracle deals with the destruction of Samaria. So that's before 722, sometime before 722. So he's living in a tumultuous time. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes, have been destroyed. And then the southern situation uh, by the Assyrians... And the southern situation is in desperate straits because when Hezekiah comes to the throne, he withholds tribute from the Assyrian uh, kings. And as a result of that, he builds a wall. We know that he prepares. He knows what's coming. So he builds a wall. It's called uh, the Hezekiah's Wall around the refugees 
who have come down from the northern kingdom, many refugees, perhaps thousands and thousands of them, have fled from the Assyrian uh, destruction of the northern kingdom. And uh, the ones that could flee fled. And so they were refugees around Jerusalem. And so he built a wall probably around it to protect them. And then he dug a tunnel to bring water from one part of the city to another part of the city in a time of crisis. So he prepared for um, this, but um, you can prepare all you want against the Assyrians, um, but they're coming and uh, those walls can't, can't stop you. But we know, not through Micah, but we know through Isaiah that uh, the Assyrians left and they didn't stay. And this is unbelievable miracle. It's an unbelievable miracle that the Assyrians would have left. And we know from the, the records of Isaiah and Second Kings that the angel of the Lord went through and decimated many of the Assyrian troops. And they, they left uh, and went back home. Now, the Assyrians, we can read about their uh, situation in, um, in uh, a prison of Sennacherib, where he says, I had Hezekiah in uh, Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And, uh, and essentially, but he doesn't say he captured him. And that's the crucial thing. Uh, and so he would have left. And why didn't he capture him? Well, I think we have the Bible basically saying that, uh, that there was a devastation among the Assyrian troops. Now, there is maybe evidence of a bubonic plague or something, which was brought by a rat or something into this. By We read about this in Herodotus. Um, I don't see any discrepancy between that and the angel of the Lord. God <laughs> um, often uses natural means. But I, I don't know exactly. But we know that he didn't take Jerusalem, which was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle that it would be like uh, it would be like uh, uh, Canada facing off against the United States and and actually the United States deciding not to come in. Um, it would be uh, yeah. So that's where he would, he would be historically. And in terms of uh, the big picture message, I would simply say um, um, that the message of Micah to his people is literally get on the right side of history. Um, the covenant which God made with Israel is going to someday transform the world. He's promised that's going to happen. God's temple will someday fill the earth, the highest point, and the Messiah will rise to the greatest height and rule to the ends of the earth. But this will, and I don't believe this will happen all at once. I get that feeling reading the book of Micah, this is gonna be a process. Um, but there's a wonderful passage from the book of Micah, which is right at its center, and it indicates that God's message will someday go out from a resurrected temple, and the nations will hear the message and come up to the temple, for they will want to end the bl vast blight of war in the world. They will hear the message, they'll go up, they will go up to the temple, they will hear the message, and uh, they, it, they will be rebuked by the Lord who will be speaking in the temple, they will leave and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they will learn war no more. Now, this is off in the distant future, Micah says. But then he addresses his pre present audience and he says, look, in light of this future reality, let's live the moment. Now, all the nations might go in the walk in the names of their gods, 
but we will decide to walk in the name of our God for now and forever. So basically he's saying, look, as we make our journey to the temple, and as we go to the temple to hear the word of the Torah, let us then go out with a Torah mindset and transform instruments of destruction into instruments of healing in the world. And let us live the future now. In other words, this is what history is going to be all about, folks. Let's do it now. And so I would say, in a way, um, let's do, and Micah says this, he says, you know, he says, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? You get a, a concrete application of that in turning swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Something that struck me about your commentary was I did feel as though I could discern Micah's own personality and in distinction from other personalities in the Old Testament. I remember there being a really striking passage where he uses this wordplay of the different cities and he sort of uh, spins the, the name on their head in, in a way to jab at them, which that was a really memorable part of the commentary. And, and that is probably, uh, we know the prophets used wordplays, but Micah, probably that, that text in chapter 1, 8 to 16 or 10 to 16 is almost unique in the Hebrew Bible for the incredible wordplay that happens one after another. Another thing that stood out in this commentary was the how you drew out some fascinating connection between the meaning of the name Micah and then the role that that name plays right at the end of the book. Could you draw that out? Yeah, uh, right at the very beginning of Micah, um, it says, it, 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 you know, this would have been added by the editor, um, the word of Yahweh, which was to Micah the Morishite in the days of Yotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw against Samaria and against Jerusalem. Um, and so, so it's interesting that you have this word. This is the only mention of the name in the book, Micah. So this is the authorship of the oracle. When you get to the end of the book, um, which shows you these things are, uh, are very carefully crafted. We might think that they're jumbled together, but they're very craft, carefully crafted. The last oracle of the book is this hymn in um, 718, and it says, literally, Me'el Kamoka no se avon. In other words, me, uh, who, me, me, is a god ale Kamoka like you. It's a play on Micah's name. Mika means who is like Yahweh, and this is who is a God like you. This has been seen by many interpreters, and uh, and they see this this is a beautiful envelope closing. And I think uh, there's another point to be made. Who is a God like you means it's a rhetorical question. Of course, no one's like you uh, because you're God. But the very first oracle in Micah is a is an oracle of incredible depiction of transcendence. God comes out of his throne room. All of reality melts before him as he comes to judge his people uh, for their sin. And as, as you get to the very end of the book, there's been a lot of judgment and all these kinds of things and mercy, but it says, who is a God like you who forgi forgives sin, who passes over the transgression of the, of the remnant of his inheritance, who does not hold on to his anger forever, for he delights in mercy. And so what the point is here at the end, these are the defining things that this, uh, 
the the prophet wants you to see about the transcendence of God, and he sees this amazing chesed of God. And I and all I can say is most scholars see seven eighteen to twenty as kind of a uh, a snapshot or a distillation of Exodus thirty four six and seven. Do you remember the passage? Moses goes up. He doesn't see the vision. Uh, God is is hiding his face so that he cannot see a fr full frontal view, but he sees the back of God, and we don't he see what he sees, we hear what he hears. He hears El Rakum Vakanun, a God of mercy and grace, a God of Erica Payim, uh, length of wrath, Varav Hesed Vaemet, full of uh, covenant love and faithfulness, Notzer Hesed Laalafim, who um, who maintains this word chesed for a thousand generations. Um, and he forgives sin and iniquity and transgression, uh, but who by no means acquits the guilty, but visits the sins down to the third and fourth generation. Now, the, the thing about that is amazing in that, you know, a lot of people get hung up on the last part, which shows that God's a God of justice. But overwhelmingly, God is the only word that's repeated twice in that is, is the word chesed. He's full of chesed. He's full of chesed. And he means a chesed for, maintains a chesed for a thousand generations. How, how many times does he, uh, does he not acquit the guilty? Down to the third and fourth generation. So I often tell my students, think about a generation as 25,000 years, and it says thousands. Of generations. So let's say it's 2,000 generations. There's 50,000 years. What's, what are three and four generations? A hundred years. This is God's character, you know. It's unbelievable, actually, when we think of this. Uh, just unbelievable. And this is what Micah focuses on, God's transcendence. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It reminds me of, I think it's in, it's in Isaiah 61, when there's this mention of the, the day of the Lord's wrath in contrast to the year of his favor. Yes. So there's this big contrast. The Lord has his time of wrath, but it's compared to a day versus a year of his yeah. favor. Yeah, that, it's amazing. And, and this is the back and not the front of God. Mm -hmm. and, and I think wow, yeah. when you think of the front of God, I, I think of um, the Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see the front of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, that's great. And thank you so much for for doing this interview. It, it's interesting because through reading your commentary, I, I noticed both your scholarship and also your own personal conviction and devotion come through in your writing. And I think that I've, I've just heard that as well through our conversation. It's, it's great. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Lindsay. God bless you. So many thanks to Dr. Stephen Dempster for taking the time to do this interview. I hope you enjoyed this episode and, and want to pick up Micah and read it. There'll be a link on the show page for beyondreadingthebible.com to his commentary where it can be purchased. I should also mention there's a special treat for the supporters of this podcast on Patreon on www.patreon.com forward slash mydigitalseminary. For more episodes and links to resources for each episode, visit our page beyondreadingthebible.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoy making it. 
Any review that you want to leave on iTunes or Google Play or any share on social media would go a huge way towards getting the word out there. This podcast requires a chunk of time and research and writing, recording, editing, promotion. It even has some financial costs. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider joining our community at Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash mydigitalseminary. For the price of a cup of coffee, you could make a big difference. There's also some great rewards as well. Special thanks to one of our supporters, Evan Baysmore, for making this episode possible. Music is by Heritage. Their music can be found at heritage.com. And I need to mention that the A in Heritage is a V. Randy McCracken can be found at BibleStudyWithRandy.com. And I can be found at MyDigitalSeminary.com. <laughs>